Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 18 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that promises it won't leave this long between this episode and the next episode. It has been a while, hasn't it, Will? Yeah, we're the podcast that says it's going to the store for some smokes and never comes back. It, <laughs> nice. I like that one. We 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 can say we're on summer hiatus. I think we did this last year. Yeah, I think I think we did. I think we took some time off. It's it's weird. You'd think that when we're we have both have time off, it'd be the easiest time to record, but due to uh, schedules. Uh, although I know I'm going to get loads of tweets from from layovers listeners because you guys have been pumping them out like every four days. Yeah, I, just a, a line that Paul and I had a very small window of opportunity while we were both on the ground to crank out a few episodes so we did and uh we're recording again this week but you know it's it's never it's never easy to find time for for one podcast let alone two but here we are we're back um slightly different episode we're taking us a little bit of a break from the alphabet we will get back there we've got a fantastic p episode lined up which we'll actually come back to later because a lot of people have been wondering what we're going to do for that but it's been a while since we've uh we've recorded so uh, we've both uh, consumed a lot of food and i think that people like that segment well we've heard from people that they like that segment where we talk about interesting or different or weird or terrible or wonderful things that we've eaten so we thought we might spend a little bit of time today on this episode talking about those those things those discoveries those revelations those train wrecks that we've experienced uh since we last we last recorded uh and then uh, next episode we'll be back with uh with a fun guest a really fun episode so don't worry we're not dumping out the the alphabet altogether we're just we're catching up a little bit otherwise if we tried to cram all the things that we've eaten into this episode and do a full episode it would be like four and a half hours long yeah which some people so, would enjoy but you know there's only so much of us masticates. that can take yes yeah, exactly mastication exactly. masticate uh, yeah that's like nation yeah well you know how like you know people have their their names for their podcast group like the nation or the audience ours would be the masochists the masochists yeah <laughs> i think that's the same with layovers there's a lot of people who go back and listen to the library from the beginning and i think we're on nice uh, Episode 77 or something like that. Wow. You know, we've got some catching up to do. Uh, so it is, as usual, Sunday night with you in, in probably not as hot UK anymore. No, no. We got back from the US on, oh, I don't know, about a week and a half ago, and it kind of hasn't stopped raining since. So I don't believe anybody when they said it really, they had a really hot summer here. I think they were just, it was all computer-generated imagery. Yeah, it was all um, one mass delusion. Yeah. Oh, just to... Just to Mess with me, uh, yeah, it's fine here. I, I you know what, I, I'm, I'm drinking something kind of weird. Uh, so Brewdog, I'm sure that you and everybody listening knows, are a big. Um, well, they were an independent brewery. I think they were bought, or at least have a stake by one of the big, maybe Budweiser, Anheuser Busch, one of the big companies. Uh, crowdfunding story of the century. Um, have you heard of them? Two Scottish lads. Who made their? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had even had their own TV show on my old, on my old network. Was it on my old network yeah. or was it on Esquire? I can't remember. Uh, no, I know them. I I know of them very 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 well. Yeah, they so they do good work and they have made waves in the beer industry. Um, Craig McCormick, if you're listening, two things: a, I owe you an email, which I hope you'll get before this episode goes live, and b, I'd be very interested to hear what you think about Brewdog and their story, and what more importantly, what they produce. Uh, but I'm drinking their non-alcoholic beer, which is called, there you go, the sound of it opening. It's called Nanny State, uh, which I I think there's a story there. Um, maybe they had to do this and didn't want to. I like non-alcoholic beers. There's some really good ones out there. Beck's Blue is fine. Um, I was introduced to Klosthaller, I believe it's called, in the US. Yeah, that was that was a bit skunky. This is, and they're all very lagery. Generally, I think that's probably the easiest way to do it. But this tastes like a proper hoppy IPA somehow. There were there was a a beer, non alcoholic beer. I think it was one of the first ones back in the nineties in the UK when I lived there. And and dear listeners, if you if I sound like I'm holding my nose, as I have a bit of an allergy situation going on, so I apologize. Um, But there was a, I think it was called Caliber. 
That's right. Uh, and uh, they had a great advertising campaign, which was a bus driver drinking a Calibre while at work and this little old lady refusing to get on the bus because she thought he was drink driving, which would never fly in our culture right now. No, I and it's it's 0.5% alcohol. It has to be lower than that to be considered quote unquote non-alcoholic. So, you know, you this is a this is a can that also comes in a bo- in a in a glass bottle as well. And the 0.5% is what all of the non-alcoholic beers are. And it is. They call it a a, a hoppy ale and that's exactly what it is. And it's not cheap compared to the Bex or most of the big the big global breweries have a non-alcoholic offering and and again they're getting they're getting better and better and better but I like this one because it tastes like an actual beer and not you kind of go yes I'm clearly drinking a non-alcoholic beer so yeah I'm I'm a fan I think uh live culture kombucha not to be that guy from San Francisco has the same rules cuz uh live culture kombucha is anywhere between like 0.2 and 0.5% alcohol. And in some cases, they do card you at Whole Foods when you buy enough of it, uh, thinking, you know, skater kids are going to get high on, uh, get drunk on kombucha. But they are selling um, hard alcohol kombucha right now, which is anything more than 5%. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. I'm glad because I was worried that it was my imagination that kombucha had was alcoholic. In some regard, because my nieces were drinking it. Yeah, it's, like, it's got uh, cultures in it that um that basically turn the the yeast into alcohol, small amounts. Okay, so okay, I'm glad it wasn't just me. That's my imagination. Then <laughs> I've never sm- tried. It. What does it taste like? Uh, I'm not a big fan. I know a lot of people. It, for me, it tastes like uh really sour, gone off fruit water with some bits in it. Really not selling. selling it. It. Really selling. Yeah, it. that 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 sounds like. That sounds horrendous. Yeah, I'm not, it's not. It's, I'm not their target audience, but uh, I know a lot of people. Who is? What's it? I mean, what is it? What's its superpower? What's it supposed it's to do? It's supposed to be really good for like antioxidants and 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 being good for you and cleaning you out and basically the the if you if you were going to um, personify the the kombucha drinker, it's a uh, yoga yoga doing uh, Subaru driving Berkeley person in their twenty to to forties. Good lord, that sounds exhausting. Or someone from Brooklyn. <laughs> Just to give- <laughs> okay, well, I, I I get it now. So, so it's like gr- drinking like glass clippings. Yeah, pretty much. It's just not my thing, and I'm sure I'm going to get a wave of of kombucha hate mail. But um, you know, it's not for me. But I'm actually drinking beer as well, and it's kind of funny that you were talking about like independent breweries and stuff like that. So there was a relatively well-known brewery in the city in San Francisco or brew pub that then opened up a a secondary location in uh, the dog patch area of of San Francisco, which is where I used to work. And it's called uh, Magnolia. And Magnolia was on Haight Street. And then they opened up. I've been there. Magnolia Smokestack, which is a barbecue joint. So about two years ago, like everyone in the city knew about it, about two years ago, they sold. I mean, like, oh, great, another, like, you know, uh, brewery being sold, like, not a terrible thing. And then I read the article, sold for $2.7 million. Good for them. No, dude, $2.7 million is, like, everyone else is selling for, like, half a billion dollars. That's not, they're not a startup, though. They're actually making something useful. What? Ha- no, I mean, there are breweries that are selling for, like, huge amounts. The issue was they were in Chapter 11, and... Uh, New Belgian, who most people know as the fat tire people, uh, came in and bought them and basically said, we're going to bail you out uh, and just keep on doing what you're doing. And, you know, that was New Belgian is a small, uh, not small, but it's a regional craft brewer that you can get now everywhere. And they've been like the biggest success story, always trying to remain independent. And so I'm looking at my beer. It's their California Kolsch. Uh, I wanted something fresh and light. Um, And it's funny because it says San Francisco, California, Magnolia Brewing. And then you flick around to the back and it says Fort Collins, California, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, which is where Fat Tire is based out of. Right, right. Um, But I was doing a little bit of research on this. According to the uh, U.S., we went to the Brewers Association. uh, Craft breweries are those that produce under six barrels per year. Oh, sorry, so six million barrels a year. Six million. I was gonna say that's not. I could, I'm pretty sure I could do six <laughs> sorry, barrels. Sorry, six million barrels per year, and so that's still a pretty lot of a lot of beer to remain a craft brewery. Are there advantages to being considered a craft brewery? Like, is there is there any different regulation or licensing or or anything that's, you know, why would why do they need to to 
define what a craft brewer is? Probably taxation and marketing. Oh, yeah. I bet you it's taxation. I don't know. I would have to ask around. Um, I don't know what the UK law states as far as what craft brewing is. And I'll get onto the, the, the craft brewing a little bit um, when we get into our travels a bit more, because I had some interesting uh, realizations when I was in, in England uh, over the last few weeks. Um, but yeah, it's very serviceable. It's very nice and fresh. Um we had a dinner party last night, and we were eating curry, which I'll get onto in a little bit. But uh, you know, beer and, wi- and white wine was what I wanted to serve because it's not red wine and curry just makes me ratchet a little bit. So, uh, <laughs> well, a t- so chicken tikka masala with red wine does taste a bit weird. It does not. <laughs> you do need a good beer with with curry, though. Exactly. Kind of- Kind of goes hand in hand. But I did see, and maybe you saw this as well. I think it was on Business Insider or someone, someone else. What is, in your mind, the best way to pour a pint or pour any beer into a glass? The whole angled thingy. Okay. The whole angled glass. Yeah. Like this right? has been browbeaten into us for probably the last 10 years where you angle the glass, run the, uh, the beer down the side, and then slowly tilt it as it comes to the top. Practice would indicate if you don't do it that way, then you get just like six inches of head. So that's what I thought. But then I was watching this this thing, and it was a basically the beer equivalent of a sommelier. I don't know what they're called. There's actually a name for them. And he was basically saying, do not do this, especially if you're going to be eating. And, he, and, and I'm thinking, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So what he does is he pours a beer into, into a can, into a glass, like how we have been told to do it. And then he gets a napkin, like a paper napkin, rolled up, like, you know, in a, in, a, in a coil. And he goes, imagine this is a nacho. And he dunks it into the beer a couple times, hit it, and it says, imagine this is in your stomach, and then you eat some nachos, and the head just explodes. And so what's happening is if you don't pour it right, and you eat food with your beer, it just causes all the carbon dioxide to explode and make you feel really bloated and gross. So he's like, pour it out, just straight out, the head will always turn to beer if you give it enough time. And I'm like, huh. And he was like, the argument about it going flat means you're taking too long to drink your beer. <laughs> carbon dioxide is carbon dioxide, and it will get to your stomach, whether, you know, irrespective of how you pour it into the glass, surely. No, because he's saying that he wants the carbon dioxide to burn, burn off, as it were, in the glass. Oh, I see. So I'd be interested to know if that changes the... I don't know, flavor of the beer or the experience, if you will, of the beer, because maybe it's less carbonated. Yeah, I think there are people brewing beer out there who who factor in that they want a certain amount of carbonation when it's in your mouth as opposed to just when it's being made. So I think if I'm just like tying one on, I wouldn't care as much as far as like if I'm not eating with it. But if I'm going to be eating with like a very carbonated beer, then I might try this out a little bit more. I'm intrigued. Now, I don't drink... I don't drink that much beer, so I I think the science is lost on me. But I would, you I, do it several times between now and when we next record, which will be again quite soon, actually, uh, and report back your findings. So what you're saying is I need to get drunk for the next seven days for science. <laughs> for science. Yeah. <laughs> so what is? I know we're sort of all over the place on this episode. What is the best thing that you have eaten, or do you want to sort of just jump into a couple of different? Areas, the worst thing you ate when since we last recorded, or the best experience? I well, I we got a couple of tweets that I think are worth mentioning because one of them does involve the best thing they ate since we last recorded, and that came from uh, R- Ross Manson, his top chap, saying tablet ice cream. He said, "I don't know if your grandfather ever got ever got you guys tablet from Scotland, but it's basically sugar, condensed milk, milk and butter." Okay, uh, it's. It's awesome, but even worse for you than deep fried pizza. I had never heard of tablet in my life. Uh, and so this was a revelation. And, and, and he posted a picture, which we should retweet um, when we put this episode live. It looks it looks good. I am amazed that it's um, as bad for you. It's You, you know what it's like? Tablet um, is a bit like English uh, fudge, British fudge. You mean like actual like the yellow stuff, the gold yeah. stuff? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's harder though, and it's so you take the things that he said. So what did he say? Um, uh, sugar, condensed milk, and butter, and then you you boil it until it's like a sort of tacky stage, and then you allow it to crystallize, and then you flavor it 
I've I've always seen it flavored with whiskey. <laughs> Because it's you know it's but it's one of those things that's sold in you know typical tourism stores and 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 tchotchke stores so they go oh look you're in Scotland so I drink whiskey but it's much more brittle than than fudge English well, I'm talking about English fudge we could do a whole episode on fudge because it's such a weird word it's it's much more brittle and and grainy than fudge which is much much softer. Um, but it's 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 really cool and it's really good. So seeing it, I'd never even considered making it. Ross, if you're listening, was it tablet flavored ice cream or was it ice cream with tablet in it? Because I mean, both sound great, but I'm I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, I was kind of confused when I saw it. I kind of thought it was like a brand name of ice cream from Scotland, and I guess that's kind of not actually true. If you're if you've been to Canada and Montreal. Um, the Quebecois have uh, sucre à la crème, which is almost identical. Really? Okay. So yeah, it, um, I don't know if they have that in France. I think it's I think it's a very Quebecois thing. So, um, yeah, not French. We are Quebecois. Don't yeah, ever yeah, don't yeah. ever confuse them. They'll punch you in the throat. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm just interested if it's one of those things that came over or it was indigenous. So, uh, yeah, I'm I it it sounds good. It sounds great actually. So I think um Ross has set the bar. Very high for things that that we've eaten uh, since we last recorded. Uh, so I, I'll tell you, I've eaten a lot as I tend to do over the summer because we go to California. I had a panic attack about a week before we left that I hadn't eaten enough Mexican food. <laughs> I'm not, and I hadn't. I hadn't. I'd eaten a lot of tacos, but not not nearly enough Mexican food. So I went and gorged. But this will interest you particularly because my in laws for my birthday. Um, took me out to dinner, um, or sent me and my wife out to dinner. They, which was great because they watched the kids, which is even even better. To this, I don't know how do they describe themselves. Um, contemporary Southwestern cuisine, and it's so it's Posada, okay, in in Livermore, California. And when it first, I'd had their food before at a winery. They that's they were smart about how they grew and marketed this place. They 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 worked with a lot of the wineries. In the Tri Valley, in Livermore Valley, which is the second biggest wine producing uh, region in Northern California, and they did these sort of wine and food pairing sessions. You went there in early doors and and came back with very very mixed feedback. I'd never been; this was my first time, and we went on a Thursday night. The place was rammed. I looked at the menu and thought, if they can make this, this ought to be outstanding and it really was uh it was outstanding i'll tell you what i had i had braised short rib enchiladas in a blackberry mole with grilled kale with bacon pureed black beans queso fresco and a pickled cauliflower relish that sounds good yeah so if you this isn't like taqueria it's not even mexican food it's it's exactly what it says it's it's southwestern inspired Californian food. Like some of the other things on the menu were four sauce chipotle mahi-mahi with saffron rice, uh, carne asada and lump crab salpicon, uh, rieno. Um, my wife had where is it, braised lamb flautas, um, which were in a spinach and bacon with um, with an avocado tomatillo sauce. I mean, they, they're, they're doing it properly and the portions were, were, were perfect. They weren't ridiculous um the 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 starters they they had you could do like tapas but it was like parmesan crust cauliflower or they had this outstanding homemade guacamole watermelon pickled slaw spring green and mango salad tostadas with tilapia ceviche that blackberry mole was one of the best things I've ever had in my life so that a lot of those things were definitely not on the menu when when we went and this was I, I I don't know how many years that they've been open, but I think we were like five. Yeah, so we probably went like four four years, eleven months ago, um, and I just felt like the what they were trying to do looked interesting. It was a much smaller menu, and then when it came, it was a bit homogenized and um, also both in texture and flavor, very 
one note. And I, it's by the sounds of it, it sounds like they've really stepped up their game. So I'd be really, really interested to give it another shot. Yeah, I, I strongly recommend it. The, the The husband is the chef, the wife is the front of house, and she kind of wanders around the tables and has long actual chats with you. And um, I, I think that they've they've grown in confidence. I was it was the best meal I had all summer by a long shot in terms of just in terms of quality. I had some fun and interesting um, food, which I'll touch on throughout the conversation. But that was just so strong. I was so impressed with it. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely give it a shot. Um, the I think the best thing that I've had, um, so just to give you all a little context, over the last six to eight weeks, I had spent uh, a few weeks in London, um, a few weeks working. So I, it was an experience I hadn't had. I've lived in, in England most of my life uh, when I was up until like the age of like 23, 24, but I'd never really like been an employee of the city as it were and like being able to go out after work and stuff like that just never really happened so it was really exciting to be able to sort of be a Londoner for for a week and um, you know experience that uh, and then down to the countryside then over to to France and so I'll touch upon a couple of different places but uh, I think that hands down the best thing I ate and I ate some great stuff I went to Tempa, which you two guys suggested, um, which was absolutely fantastic, the slow roasted meats in, in London. That was absolutely incredible. But the best thing I had, and I was a little reserved because um, Shoreditch wasn't Shoreditch when I left London. And for people who don't know what that means, Shoreditch is the hipster capital of the universe, according to British people. Um, and it really is. It, it's, it, but with the good things that hipsters bring, you know, high quality food, beer, uh, you know, uh, social consciousness, exactly, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a friend of mine said, let's go get dinner in, in Shoreditch. So it's like, okay, where, where are we going? And it's this place called the Smoking Goat. Have you ever heard of it? Oh, yeah, of course. How, have you been? I've not been. So we went to the Smoking Goat and it's considered a Thai barbecue, which I think that the things I've noticed in, in America, sorry, in England, that they're really trying to like jump on the train of, of like, you know, doing Mexican food, doing American style barbecue and or American style fried chicken. And they're just still not quite getting it quite right. So the riff on this of doing Thai barbecue was so interesting and so good. So the best thing we had was barbecue mutton shoulder in a, uh, in a Masman curry. And it comes out in like this big plot platter and like we ordered a bunch of things and the woman was like, if you're going to get that, then you just only get a couple of other small things. And it was falling off the bone. It was uh, so flavorful and the, the barbecue flavors, the smokiness of it all just came straight through. And the downstairs, I'm not sure, I think it has an upstairs, but we sat at the bar and it was just you know, a really great experience. Um, I wish I could have gone back and had some other things, but it's, it's something that I want to try. And maybe recreate it in the home. Uh, I, I feel like there's everything that I need. I can get lamb quite easily. I can get mutton. Um, and I should be able to do it, but I don't think it's going to be as good. Something in the spice blend, which is fantastic. Yeah, and I wonder if they cooked it on a on a spit or how they cooked it. I don't know. Um, their website has a lot of photos of how they make their stuff. So I'm sure I can piece this together and, and figure it out. But um, yeah, it, it, it's something that I'd never had before. Um, so it was, Sounds amazing. it was very, very interesting. And apparently the, the guy who owns Smoking Goat has a, has another location. I want to say more central, like in the Soho area that is, uh, also just as good, but I'm blanking on the name. Everyone at work was like suggesting these places for me to go. And I was just like, I have about five nights out and, uh, you're going to bankrupt me by the end of this. Cause yeah. whilst London is, uh, the, the dollar is doing a little better against the, the pound that it has in the past. It's still a very expensive city to eat out, but it's a great city to eat out. I don't think that can be argued. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed everywhere I went. I, you know, I think only once did I run to the, like, you know, not the corner store, but a place to grab like a, a sandwich to go just because I had no time. I purposely tried to make it so that I could try something uh, new every, everywhere I went. Um, but the hilarious thing is if you ask my wife what the best thing that she had whilst in England, Smith's Scampy Crisps. Do you know? Oh, well, yeah. My, my kids love those. Yeah. So we were at the pub down in the countryside and we were having some beers and uh, we just wanted some nibbles. And I got some uh, I got some hog lumps. I got some pork scratchings, which are hands down. No one else in the world can touch English on their pork scratchings. Um, I challenge you. I think the Mexicans do it way better. 
different, different. I we we can get into this, but like I think there's you. God, now you're making me second guess myself. I just hadn't had English uh, pork scratchings for so long, and I was sitting there with my beer, and it just it was so good. Um, very good. I think I don't think one is better than the other. I think they're both wonderful things. But to quote our brother uh, Andrew, um, who says he he's gone off pork scratchings ever since our uncle said he found a nipple in a bag one time and uh, refused to to eat anymore. You know what? You're eating you're eating deep fat fried pork skin. I don't think you can be picky about what you find in it. Exactly. But but I went and got some uh some 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 nibbles where we were at the at the at the pub and i was like a little unsure i was like oh well the only thing they had that kate's gonna like is you know these crisps and so i went and bought them smith's i think is the same company as um walker's just owned by and and uh, what do they call it over here lays they're owned by the same company that's called different things in different areas um but scampi chips and they taste like they don't taste fishy they just taste like uh uh, seasoning and uh, lemon juice. And let's put it this way. We got back to the house and Kate looked on Amazon and found a, uh, uh, you know, a, a bulk pack that can be shipped to the house. It's going to take about three weeks to get here, but we'll never have to be short of scampi chips ever again in our lives. <laughs> I, I know exactly those things. I, I think uh, I even know the pub that you're referring to that, that those are good. I think scampi and prawn cocktail crisps are one of those things where, you're like, oh god, that sounds awful, and then you eat them. You're like, oh, that actually god, is a, a question for the audience. Like, so we could do an entire episode on 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 a, a food product that everybody has, but the very the regional variations are so strange. So, like, what is your favorite crisp flavor or chip flavor in your country? Because, like, the Canadians, it's ketchup. Like ketchup is like the most ubiquitous, like only found in Canada flavor. I'm not saying it's the most popular, but like it's like known for them. And like in England, it's uh, prawn cocktail, which you can't find anywhere else really, except for maybe Australia. You know, I'd be really interested to see if there's any other like random variations. I'd love to know, like, what are the Pringles flavors in your countries? (laughs) Because because in Oman, they have ketchup flavor in in Japan, they have takoyaki flavor pringles I, I have a can of them on my desk which sir greg barnier spot back for me pringles are extraordinary like they're like the kit kat of the chip world do you know that the so, guy who invented uh I, i'm gonna probably misremember this but the guy who invented pringles his ashes are in a, in a pringles uh container that's very apropos and, and i always reminds me of um Mitch Hedberg, the stand-up comedian, yeah. his line about Pringles. He's like, I thought Pringles – I think Pringles is a really laid-back company. They were meant to make tennis balls, but on the day that the rubber was supposed to show up, potatoes did. And they said, screw it. Cut them up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, Mitch Hedberg. Yeah. But no, if you have variations on, on, on Pringle flavors, on crisp flavors, obviously um, – you know, with things like Kit Kat, the Japanese reign supreme on all their variations. But I would love to know, uh, you know, South America, I feel like is a big unknown for a lot of this stuff. And I think a lot of their flavors don't make it out to the rest of the world. So if you have any friends in Argentina or Chile, let me know what you're chowing down on. Yeah, absolutely. Paprika, that's another big Pringles flavor. What was the, there was a, there was a the crisp or, or chip company, whatever you want to call it in, in Hong Kong. That was, it was a black, uh, bag. Calbee. Calbee with Japanese, but it was, it was like a paprika or like a caliente flavor. And yeah, yeah. Um, when I was last, when we went where there with the kids, that was the first thing I bought was a Picari sweat and a packet of Calbee. <laughs> wow. You're just living. They're your bo- bo- both Japanese, both Japanese. But yeah, that was, that, that was our pack lunch go to was packet. Of, and they were like, the the standard Calbee, there was like regular, just ready salted. And then there was these, the ones that you're referring to that were spicy AF, as I, <laughs> you know, and they were good. They still are good. Um, so, so to dive into to London a little bit more, um, there were a couple of things I just really noticed while I was while I was over there because, as I mentioned, it's been so long since I had just been a regular citizen rather than just like seeing family and friends. From the beer perspective, and maybe Ross, you can you can jump in and and, and correct me or and Craig. Why is it that the beer or the popular beer is trying to be American? Like we were derided for so long for our terrible beer, and then we decided to launch the craft beer revolution. And we have such great like local beers that obviously don't travel because of tax laws, which I've mentioned before. Um, but now everywhere I go in London, it's like 
they're trying to be like the new Brooklyn Lager or these super hoppy American IPA style. And they're just flying off the shelf to the point where like I'm lining up at a pub and everyone's ordering, well, Hell's Lager is, you know, Camden Hell's is the big one that a lot of people were drinking. And I'm like, can I get a, you know, a, an ale that tastes like a cup of tobacco to a spit? And they're just like looking at me like wrong pub. I'm like, what's happened to our heritage? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think, I think that's true. I think it's, it's, getting harder and harder to find a oh that's not true i was gonna say it's harder and harder to find a lager it's impossible to find a lager in america yes you always have a cold lager or or three on tap in pretty much any even our the local pubs around me that you always have maybe one domestic two or three um import but pubs use quote-unquote unusual beers to draw people in to differentiate themselves and they look to these to these craft breweries and this sort of american style ipa even though ipa is obviously not an american beer style by you know provenance um has become one of the ways of describing a beer without having to describe it in in 30 words um yeah so and i think yeah i think it's it's a popular i'm not a big beer drinker so i you know I, I know what I like, and it's not – it's certainly not a very low to non-carbonated ale. I just can't do those. You're a terrible – At restaurant at room temperature. I think they're just fucking <laughs> – It was not room temperature. It was cellar temperature, and I always have to give my father-in-law a hard time who's American because he always like, hey, Will, I left your beer out in the sun for you so it tastes like home. I'm like, hey – no. The difference is that it was served at cellar temperature, which if anyone has been to England at any time of year, or cellar temperature is usually around, you know, it, there's actually a scientific term, and I forget what it is, of what cellar temperature range has to be. Um, and I think in the Celsius world, it's like anywhere between like 12 to 15, and in the Fahrenheit world, it's whatever that is, what, like mid-50s. So, you know, it's not warm, it's not cold. Yeah, it, I enjoy it. I, I just miss it. Um, there's nothing like you know, a, a cold winter's day doing the crossword in a pub with uh, a, a a glass of or a pint of Larkins. And if you're from the southeast of England, you would know Larkins. Did you know there's a Larkins brew pub now in Cranbrook? Shocking. That, yeah. Shocking. That's, that, the statement is literally only applicable to me and Will, so <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, let's put it this way. It'd be like a, an old, uh, old, totally old school farmer's lager who's trying to get with the times and open a brew pub in our local uh market town so it's a little odd yeah it's just not my jam at all i know it's and i don't know i mean there's camera here the campaign for real ale i'm sure there's more words in in there but you know they're very militant and i I think by their militancy they've slightly ostracized themselves yes no there's the fact that i am aware of the the stereotype of a, a, a campaign for real L person being a tweed wearing man uh, with a stick and a dog um, who doesn't believe in multiculturalism. Yeah, that's kind of like what it's become. I'm not. I'm not sure. I I think camera have have been. We, interestingly, camera uh, have been absolutely imperative in saving pub culture, which is important because. A staggering number of clo- – I mean, we're talking double, if not triple figures of pubs close every week here in the UK just because, you know, the, the millennials – and I'm not using that in a in a derisive way. I'm just using it as a way of categorizing people's age. Pubs just aren't aren't their jam. So pubs are going out of business. Uh, also, so many pubs were owned by breweries, which that law has sort of changed and now people can – The law has changed and the economics have, are, are becoming increasingly uh, untenable – they're not sustainable the way that they do it, and so it's very, very difficult for a pub or a pub landlord to make to make money if they're paying, uh, they're paying the the tithe back to the either to the to the um, owner or to the um, to the brewery. So, camera kind of stepped in and, and and have helped preserve a lot of these pubs, which many of them are stunning and important anchors of of local communities and and need to be preserved in one form or another so it is it is what it is but uh, you know i i think they 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 play a role i think their role is 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 changing again um craig let us know and anybody else let us know what you think about that um so the last thing i'll, I'll touch upon on london was uh and i i, I bemoaned this to you uh i think while i was traveling the fact that everyone not only does this but assumes that you will be doing this 
is contactless payments. So rather than oh, pulling correct. out your cash or your card to be swiped and pushed into a machine or whatever, everybody at like uh, a bar seven deep is just holding out their phone or their card to be tapped and then just move on with your life. I was not aware of this and the uh, looks and uh, social tuttings I got, uh, you know, made me very, very uncomfortable. But um, it, by the end of it, it makes so much sense because there's no tipping in England. So you don't have to wait for them to come back and you type in how much you want to put on for the tip. So basically, the man shows you the, uh, uh, you know, what your your total is. You tap your card or your phone and then you're off with your with your beverages and it it makes everything run so smoothly. So I apologize to the 17 or 18 pubs that I made an ass of myself. But, um, you know, I learned by the end of it to the point where I was at Whole Foods yesterday and I, I used uh, contact list to pay there. And the woman had to chase me out of Whole Foods because I thought, forgot to put my pin in. So she was like, oh, well, whoops, I forgot about this whole payment process. Yeah, it's so antiquated. We Every time we do an American episode on that touch there, we have to remind people that it's stuck 45 years behind the rest of the world i mean you go to japan and it's even even more advanced you just sort of wave your hand over over the thing but yeah i mean the nice thing is is you can have one card it will get you on any transport in the uk this is just a debit card or credit card any any purchase under 30 pounds um apple pay is unlimited there's no limit on on how much you can use with contactless if you're using apple pay uh yeah it's how it should work it makes it absolutely seamless there's no there's no, do you want cash back? Do you want to, you know, donate to this charity? You know, do you, on a scale of one to five, how's your day going? Yes. Like just, you know, none of that nonsense. It's just in and out. And that's the way it should be. It is pretty impressive. So, you know, I, I, I really did enjoy it. And it was like a thousand degrees in, uh, in England the entire time I was there. So a lot of, uh, a lot of beer gardens were gone to and a lot of outside seating. Um, you know, I think I have to go back in the wintertime again and, and see if I could survive the, 3.30, pitch black, everyone looking miserable and it raining sideways. You know what? In London, in London, you don't even notice it. That's what I thought. You know, I, I, I was staying in some areas that I didn't really know and working in an area that like was the most central place I've ever been to in my life as far as working. But I feel like if I was living there, I wouldn't notice it. I, I would just feel like I'm part of a, you know, a city that has lights everywhere and therefore I'm not, it's not the countryside. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Well, good. I'm glad it was successful. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely want to make some more time, make some more time in the future to, to go back. Um, but I know that you did a little bit more traveling while you were here, um, you know, to a couple different places. What, what else were you, were you eating and, and imbibing while you were, while you were in the U.S.? So there's one, uh, there's only a couple more I want to touch on, but, and I'm hesitant to even mention this next one because, they're going to come up in a future episode of Attaché, but we were up in Seattle and we went to Walruson Carpenter, which I didn't know this until after the fact, until in fact, like maybe 10 days after I got home that uh, Anthony Bourdain had gone there when he shot his episode of, I don't know if it's Parts Unknown or, or no, it was Parts Unknown because it hasn't been open that long. And it's a, they, they specialize in oysters and we sat down with them and had the most extraordinary oysters I've I've ha- ever had in my life. They were just divine, and it's it's one of those things where you just sort of you feel compelled to eat almost like you you don't eat them often enough, so you don't take the time to really understand how they work and how different waters folks, make different changes, different flavors because they're filters yeah. by definition. They're filters. They take the stuff in, and they their 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 membranes filter. Uh, the water and they they take the things they need to survive out of it and then they uh, um, expel the water so whether that where that where in the delta they are completely changes the flavor and it was a fascinating education on on these extraordinary creatures how one is supposed to eat them you're absolutely not supposed to swallow them whole that is an old wise tale and incredibly uncouth t-i-l you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to chew at least two times. That releases the brininess, uh, uh, the almost brackishness that you get, and the flavor. Otherwise, you don't get to taste these things. The 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 swallowing at whole thing came from the East Coast where there was low-quality oysters that you didn't really want to eat, but they were a status symbol uh, and considered, although incorrectly, an aphrodisiac. So people wanted to eat them, but they didn't really want to taste them. And we also had gooey duck. Oh, fun. Yeah. Which is, you know what? I'm not even going to tell you. 
The episode will be out soon. Watch it. You'll see it. It's the most phallic creature that you'll ever consume. That's all I'm going to say. There was a, a bar when we I used to live in, in on the East Coast. There was a, a, a restaurant slash bar at the very tip of um, Cape Cod uh, in, a, in a town called Provincetown, which for those that know is also the, the gay capital of um, of New England. It has you know Pride Festival and stuff like that. But there's a restaurant. I always forget the name of it. But when you walk in, the waiting area just has a giant painting of a gooey duck. And you're like, oh, I know where I am now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh it's it's very cool it was it was delicious um i will say no more uh and yes if you're in seattle you've been to seattle yes we went to dick's uh yes it was amazing yes it makes for an interesting conversation when you're describing uh what you're doing tonight <laughs> you guys gonna go to we're gonna go get some dicks um and we did and the dicks were amazing or was amazing jumping back to the oasis real quick did you know that it was uh the original bar snack and so, like, you'd have people, like, roaming the streets of New York and I think London as well, where they would be going up and down uh, the, the main streets with, like, a wheelbarrow full of oysters. And they would just chuck it for you and hand it out. Um, the sanitariness of that I don't think was great. And I think that might have been leading to some of the issues that you've been talking about of, like, just get it down because you don't want to taste a warm oyster. No, I think that's a great way to uh... – Pee blood out of your ass, but I, um, or just be yeah, have a really really bad day. Um, yeah. So so that was that was really good. I I think my favorite discovery though was found by my father in law and actually your father in law as well. They were uh they were cycling in San Francisco and stumbled across this place for for breakfast I think or maybe lunch it doesn't really matter. And they had a sausage on the menu that was so good, my father-in-law, who is uh, not an outgoing man with people he doesn't necessarily know, was so moved by how good they were that he was compelled to ask, where the hell did you get these? And they said, they told him, and it turns out this 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 sausage company is in Gustine, California. I, I didn't even know where that was. I have no Gustine, idea where that is. Gustine, California, population maybe five or 6,000 is a small ranching community just off of I-5 in the middle of nowhere, maybe two hours south of the Bay Area, surrounded by cattle farms and olive and almond farms. Nothing, nothing, I mean, no offense to the good people of Gustine. I'm going to redeem myself in a minute. There's not a lot to, to draw you over there at all. And I was like, well, look, we're coming up from LA. I just mapped it. It only adds eight minutes to our five-hour ride home. I'll stop by. I'll see. I'll see if we can get something. We get into Gustine, which I fell in love with immediately. It's like going back in time. It was immaculate, all 1950s architecture, the downtown. But anyway, ranching communities. It was. It was literally like being in 1955. And we pull up to this place called Wolfson's Meat and Sausage, which was no bigger than you know your your living room. And it was per- it was absolutely spotless, just like the rest of the town. Beautiful frontage. You pull in, and they make about seventy different types of sausage. And the the owners' daughters are the ones working the registers. They always have six or seven different ones for you to try. Lollipops for the kids. But they make you know they make linguisa, they make kielbasa, they make Jamaican jerk, all of the salsa. And I was like. Okay, these guys cl- and they also smoke their own meats. They smoke tri-tip, make their own beef jerky, and they made all, like all of these different you know, the, the classics like Polish and and things like that. So I, I I got a handful and I was like, all right, to the lady behind the the counter, what's your what 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 should I get? What's your favorite? She's like, oh, by far, by far our most popular is the spicy Hawaiian, and I'm thinking. Well, that sounds gross. <laughs> uh, I was like, and I didn't want to be rude and go, "Ooh, no." <laughs> so I was like, "Okay, yeah, sure, I'll take some." Uh, we take them back to the to the house, grill grill them up a little bit. I think maybe even that day, they were without question, other than Mister Ward's chipolatas, the best sausages I've ever had in my life. They were, and this and the sweet Hawaii, uh, a spicy Hawaiian, outstanding, just delicious. Tiny little bit of sweet. Not loaded with um, pineapple, all fresh, lovely kick. The linguisa, the everything they produced was just incredible. 
I couldn't get over how good they were. I don't have a trip to LA planned, but now I'm kind of wanting to do a round trip. You know what? I, I, it, they were so good that I took my son uh, with my good friend uh, Mike and his son to the Castle Air Force Base in Atwater, California, which was an old B-52 base, which is now a wonderful airplane museum. We drove 35 minutes out of our way just so we could go back there and get more. <laughs> it, it was that. And I mean, I don't, I eat sausage maybe once a quarter. I like it, but I'm not like in love with it. These were so good. And they got such a, the, the, you know, I, they'd like, where are you from? And I was like, Livermore. And like thinking, I bet they think that's exotic. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. We have a lot of people come down from Livermore. I'm like really? Like she's like, oh yeah, we have one guy that drives from Reno. Oh, wow. Yeah, and and they don't ship. Their website is straight GeoCities. Uh, it's, <laughs> I mean, I was taking a sip of beer when you said that. I was close. It, it, I mean, it, honestly, it has the rippled paper background. Um, it's absolutely a revelation. I I I, I asked them like, why didn't you ship? They're like, well, we couldn't maintain the quality if we had to scale it. I'm like, you know what? Is the right answer? Is there a a, a military base fairly close to there? Because generally, I found that with places like that that pop up, and you're like, "How do you stay in business?" Generally, it's because like they might be a military base like 45 minutes away, and everyone just comes in and grabs their meat there, kind of thing. Nope they are they are they stay in business because they're fucking good at what they right. do, um, and they they a lot. I think people like like whoever owned the restaurant that my that our fathers in law were were eating in uh, did what I did and stopped in, and we're like why are not everybody eating this <laughs> uh it's yeah you know and they do they do fresh sausage they do smoked sausage if you're anywhere near i mean gustine is worth going to look at it's neat because it's cal it's in the central valley which is the most productive ag agricultural region on earth and you see it you know there's it's surrounded by the raw materials they need to make their product beef and pork as well as phenomenal actual produce yeah, yeah, produce and spices uh, uh, and and water and everything like that. So, yeah, just um, uh, what a wonderful discovery. That's awesome. And I know some people that drive that fairly frequently. So I'll see if I can get them to just like – I'll give them like 50 bucks and be like, just get whatever you can. That's exactly what everybody does to me. They're like, oh, here's – go get me some sausage <laughs> if you're going that way. Um, so there's two other things I just wanted to touch upon. Uh, so after, after London – we went down to uh, our our father's house uh, in the south of France, and uh, right in the heart of fantastic uh, Provençal uh, cuisine, food, wine. It is rosé country, and by that I don't mean uh, what you know people in this area of the world drink uh, on the weekends. It's actually fantastic high quality rosé and i'm not usually a rosé person you know ate some fantastic food I keep saying that word uh some great french food as well uh some great french wine and charcuterie but one of the things that we did was um i did a provencal cooking course while i was down there and uh you know that was that was absolutely wonderful in this tiny little place with uh, petra our, our instructor and amongst the other things that we made there were two things that really really stood out to me uh do you know what a tart soleil is no. So tart soleil is, um, imagine um, you get a round piece of puff pastry or uh, phyllo pastry, doesn't really matter, depending on what you want to do. Um, and you can either cut it to be circular, about the size of a pizza, or just like uh, you can get circular ones. Then what you do is you put whatever filling you want right in the middle of it. So what we did was uh, blue cheese, walnuts, uh, some fresh herbs, and uh, I think like an apricot like flavor or something like that but like i was thinking while i was there i'm gonna do it with like with bacon and some maybe some uh, dried figs and uh some really good cheese as well and and you know spices and what you do is you lay another perfectly like pizza sized piece of um uh dough right on top of it then you make a very, very, like maybe like three inch radius inner circle right in the middle and then cut like pizza plate, uh, slices out of it radiating out. And then you twist each of the pizza ones over on itself twice. So you're making these sort of like spirals that come out of the central circle. Throw it in the oven for, for like 30 minutes at like 350. Uh, and it comes out and it looks like, you know, a sun radiating sun rays. And each one of these twists are like, you know, garlic knots basically of, of flavor. And it it was so simple, 
but so good. And this is what I've learned over the last however many years of me cooking French food and, and going to France. It's not complicated. It's good ingredients done well with incredible care. And so that's something that I definitely want to be as we move into the colder months where I think, you know, more pastries are uh, are acceptable. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll do more of that. The other thing that we made was a fresh cheese, almost like a farmer's cheese. And something like you would you just take uh, yogurt or, or cream and you use the strainer and you let it like basically drip and separate itself overnight um, while you add in different flavors. And we had fennel and cumin and you can make this half dip, half cheese, you know, overnight. And everyone thinks, oh, cheese uh, creation is so difficult, so labor intensive. And I'm not saying this is like, you know, hard or like firm or or Germanic in flavor, but it's like I don't have to go to the store and make a or and buy like a six dollar tub of like French onion dip. I can I can make this at home, and it it was just so easy. And the, the big takeaway from this is, if you're thinking classic bistro French food, it's not Southern French. The Southern French is much no. more of a peasant food. Let, let's figure out what we can do with what we have. So a lot of fresh vegetables, small amount of meat. Uh, if you want that bistro, you're going north. I mean, Lyon is the capital of of all gastronomy in the world, and I'm willing to fight over that as far as like what we consider to be, you know, the brigade system, the restaurant system. Uh, obviously, separating sort of like the Chinese and the Japanese out from this because they just have a millennia of their own. But if we're talking about like European based Western cooking, it all comes from Lyon, and and you know that's a different ball uh, a story altogether. But Provencal cooking is just so fresh, so easy, something that I, I definitely going to take with me everywhere I go. Um, and obviously, you've eaten a lot of that food. Yeah, and it, it's fantastic. I love I love French food. And I, it's one of the cuisines that I haven't tackled as much at home because, I, I don't know, there's almost something sacred to it. <laughs> I think it's – you're right. It's not – it's not – overly complicated i think it's the it's the quality of the ingredients and the skill and the care like i mean i mean i make julia child's boeuf bourguignon reasonably frequently because that's like you know one of the 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 most wonderful recipes that have ever been put out into the into the ether but um uh, yeah i i i think uh also that part of the world takes a little bit more um inspiration from the, the mediterranean than northern french food or or because Lyon's about an hour north of where where our father is, but it's only 35 minutes to the coast. It's only an hour and a half to Spain. Yeah, Lyon so might be, you know, only an hour away, but it's it's light years as far as um, culinarily. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's that's very true. I, and I'm, I'm the opposite to you. Like, I, I when I decided I wanted to, to, to cook, I chose to learn French food. I chose to learn French technique. I became obsessed with the brigade system about bringing meals together at the same time based on, you know, how you're cooking the individual ingredients. Uh, look, I, I, I really enjoy Italian food and I'm actually coming around to more and more Italian food every day uh, as, as you know, I think so many people are just ruined by uh, sort of a stereotypical view of Italian food whilst uh, that to, to the same extent that Provencal can be so varied, like, when I was, my wife was in, in, in studying in Italy, we would go down to the Amalfi coast and the Amalfi food is, and, and that area of the world is light years away from what they do in, in Rome as far as, uh, you know, it's more simplistic and, 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 uh, fresh, simple, um, and, and not easy, but just, I don't know, um, not as, finickety um as they might be doing in rome and so i i do i just i think i'm i i like that i don't i would rather have five ingredients done well than a thousand ingredients done poorly um which i think america is moving away from that but in the past it was like how many notes can we put into this symphony before it sounds like just noise and i hate that kind of thing yeah no exactly and i think that that's what that style of cooking does so well uh, and the dishes that you made sounds amazing yeah they were fantastic the, the last thing I want to touch upon was actually uh, inspired by you. Um, so I contacted you yesterday with about six hours notice saying, hey, uh, I'm doing a dinner party and it's gone from three to five. And also one of the people is, is vegetarian. Uh, you know, do you have a curry dish in mind? Because I was, I, was, I was convinced I wanted to do a curry. I just didn't know what. And then you sent over a link to the Chana Masala from Serious Eats, which is a chickpea dish. Basically, chick chickpea 
curry. And I already had in my mind that I was going to do a tikka masala, a chicken tikka masala. And I was a little worried about like, how do I build the both the sauces and are the timing going to be different and the prep going to be different? But basically, I built the base and the sauce of the masala. And then as soon as I started putting in things that skewed away from the the chana masala, just started making a separate pot of it. And and not to toot my own horn, but it's one of the best things I've made in a very, very, very long time. And the vegetarian um, Tessa, a friend of ours, was absolutely, you know, she like she really, really enjoyed the the um, the vegetarian, and to the point where I'd made it. I just followed your, the directions and, and obviously made it for four people. So we were sorry, like digging into hers as well. So I, there was a little bit of the chicken tikka masala left, but none of the uh, of the the chana masala left. So. I, I like that recipe. It's a, it's a great recipe. I get to the point now where uh, if I want a recipe for something, I put in the dish like in Google and then Sirius Eats because almost invariably they will produce something. Or if I have a cooking query, I put the 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 dish or the technique or the the equipment followed by Kenji. <laughs> I knew you. And that, say speaking that. speaking of Kenji, I just listened yesterday uh, to his episode on Freakonomics about opening his restaurant in San Mateo, Worst Hole. Yeah. Um, about I think the episode is entitled "Why You Should Never Open a Restaurant." Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's worth listening to if you're interested in the mechanics and, and backroom drama, uh, of opening a restaurant. It doesn't sound fun at all. I mean, I've been peripherally involved in opening a restaurant and even that stressed me out, but it's worth, it's a great podcast anyway, but it's worth listening to as well. He, he was actually just recording with, uh, First We Feast, who are the guys that do the, um, the hot wings challenge. Um, he wasn't doing the hot wings. He was doing uh, first we feast um, on the perfect burger. Oh yeah. I, I saw that they were doing a video episode. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so the, the curry went down fantastically. In fact, I have a friend of mine uh, who's, who was there yesterday texting me asking uh, for, for more details on it. So um, I will have to get back to them and, 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 Maybe try some more of the the. Ve- you sent me another vegetarian curry dish that I I just didn't have time to do just because it was completely on the opposite spectrum of of what we were doing. Yeah, no, I I think you made a good choice with that one. That chana masala is a, is a very simple for Indian food um, or for curry anyway. Go to res- recipe which I love. Well, as we as we wrap up here, I, I'm very keen to hear from you guys out there. What was the best thing that you've eaten since our last episode? So you've got a lot, a lot of time to pick from. Yeah. Send us a, a tweet at, at MasticationNTN. And for those of you, there are a lot of people guessed uh, what the next episode is going to be for, for P. I think one or two of you got it. But yeah, I'm, sur- stay I'm tuned. surprised not as many. Like people did not figure this out. Yeah, there were some. Um, there were some very interesting guesses uh, alongside the the more obvious ones. Uh, Anita Ip uh, at Anita Ip two on Twitter said, "I'm getting hungry, guys. Pastrami, pears, pigs, polenta, pasta, pizza, piccalilli would have been a good one. Uh, pomegranate, party grub, parmesan, Passover, Passover seder, which all of which are good. <laughs> yeah, pork scratchings is a uh, uh, <laughs> Ben pit my dibber." prunes yeah not gonna do sorry paul paul papa dimitriou pasta pomegranate peas pumpkin but knowing you guys pot noodles (laughs) i could do a whole episode on pot noodle when i was at school there was an urban legend that eating a pot noodle was the equivalent detriment to your health as smoking one cigarette the one I had was that the plastic container it came in was more nutritionally sound for you than the actual ingredients (laughs) Oh my god, they're both probably true. Um, so the the last thing I want to finish on, uh, which I think works so perfectly for us and for your other endeavor layovers. Uh, do you know who the chef uh, Richard um, Blaeus? I can never pronounce his last name. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was a host. On, he was a guest. No, he was a contestant on Top Chef, and then he owns a bunch of restaurants uh, in San Diego. And I think a couple of other places, but I saw this tweet and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So he tweeted, uh, just got my carry on screened at TSA. She asked if I had any food in my bag. And I said, no, with certainty. She then proceeded to pull out three bananas, two apples, a small tin of caviar and a demi bottle of wine. Nervously, I said, 
Well, we're about a pineapple away from a gift basket. <laughs> so always check your always check if you're carrying a, ba- a gift basket in your carry-on or suffer the wrath of the TSA. Yeah, I and mean, you don't want to mess with that. Yeah, uh, but yeah, absolutely. Send us your your thoughts, your feedbacks. Uh, hopefully, we'll be recording in the near future. And besides that, I think. This will be returning to normal service as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, we got a great guest lined up for the next episode. Uh, make sure you uh, you've got those notifications turned on for whatever your wonderful podcast app is, and we will see you then. But until next time, eat well. There you go.